Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito Welcome in everybody to the Longhorn Republic, your source for Texas Longhorn news, sports, and opinions with a bit of snark built in. We are a podcast of Burn Orange Nation. You can find more great Texas Longhorn content over at burnorangenation.com. If you like what we do, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps get the show out there. Share this with your friends wherever you found it, whether it was Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere where you find fine podcast content. You can find Kyle and myself. Feel free to connect with us on social media at... Longhorn Pod on Twitter. Shoot us an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. My name is Gerald Goodridge, and I'm your host this week, like I am every week. And I'm joined by a man who'll never go to an Oklahoma State home game because he believes the Lord leads you beside Stillwater, Kyle Carpenter. Kyle, how are you? <laughs> that's not that's not bad. Um, I'll say this. I don't particularly love Oklahoma State in any way. That's uh, um, I will say... The one thing that I begrudgingly respect about them is if you do go to an Oklahoma State game, they sing, um, I think, I don't know if Three Dog Night was the writer, but they were the ones who made it famous that um, I've never been to Oklahoma. But basically saying uh, the line goes through and says, you know, I've never been to heaven, but I've been to Oklahoma. Um, And they throw a state on the end, which is just a great fan cheer appropriation of pop culture. I will give them that. It's actually pretty fantastic. Um, the little paddles and sticks they do are stupid. I, I'm glad there's not many fans in the stands for this one because it, there, there is nothing still about the water there on a, on a Halloween night. It's spooky. They have stupid, like, you know, a yard from the boundary concrete that likes to knock players out. It's just a dumb place. It should be outlawed. No one should ever have to go there uh, to play college football. I contended that Charlie Strong's career in Texas ended when Deontay Foreman got tossed into that wall. I, I've said it before and I'll say it again because, De- like, they – they win that game if Deontay doesn't go out, and then they probably don't lose the next week. But that's again whole other whole. That's a separate podcast when we actually don't have football to talk about because whatever. Our off season podcast butterfly effects. Gerald and Kyle deep dive with six hour podcast and what could have been. We I would totally love to do that. That'd be incredible. But no. So all that to say that it is a battle of who's got the real orange, and I believe orange should be burnt like the good Lord intended as Texas takes on. Number six, Oklahoma State, undefeated on the season. Uh, They are one game short of everybody else in the conference because, well, Baylor had to postpone because Baylor does what Baylor does and got COVID. I I say again, Gerald, the branch COVIDians. Go on. They've got more COVID than shiplap. Uh, (laughs) So Oklahoma State, 4-0 in the season. I... 
the they survived against Tulsa, uh, a sixteen to seven game. Now you you have to take a couple of things into account with that. Spencer Sanders knocked out early in that game, and then they somehow went with they went with the wrong quarterback. They did that weird Gundy thing where he plays the upperclassman, even though the underclassman is way better. Uh, but when they made the quarterback switch, they decided the offense finally figured it out. Uh, they beat West Virginia twenty seven to thirteen. They did what you do to Kansas forty seven to seven, and then uh, snuck by Iowa State twenty four to 21 so undefeated on the season number six in the country um we we normally would talk about the offense first with Oklahoma State because that's usually been their their bell cow but really this year Oklahoma State has been getting it done on defense and as much as uh Kyle is the one that usually toots his own horn I'll go ahead and say it that something that I called out is that Oklahoma State was gonna be really good on defense this year they return um nine of a I think they returned like nine of 11 starters from last year some some big number but a bunch of them are upperclassmen they're giving up just 12 points per game 4.49 yards per play now you do have to take into account that that's floated by the fact that they played Kansas and Kansas is absolutely hot trash but Oklahoma State probably has the best defense in the conference, which is something I never thought I would actually be alive to say. Let's see, Gerald. The only thing I'll say, and I don't think you're wrong, I think Oklahoma State's... I said May. May's doing a lot of heavy lifting. Fair, okay. That's, 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 okay. Uh, I will take some salt and grains that that are thrown over shoulders there. I think they have an an argument for it. They still have some, a lot of meat on their schedule, right, with with Texas and OU. Um you know, offense is potentially putting a, a little dent in that. They, they, um, West Virginia is not a great offense. Kansas is a very bad offense. They played Tulsa in an opening week kind of slobber knocker that was just super, super sloppy on both sides. Um, so Iowa State's probably the best even or offense that they've seen all year. And, um, you know, I'm just going to say, I don't know exactly. It is still October, but maybe the Mayan calendar says it's actually November or something because it didn't necessarily look like Brocktober. Um, but, you know, we've said for a while, and we'll talk about this in our Iowa State preview, that the best player on Iowa State is, is Brees Hall. And they, you know, I'll just throw this out here spoiler alert. They gave up 185 yards rushing to him last week at, at over nine a clip. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think. They are a good unit, and I don't want to overstate that. I think they are a very good unit. I think the fact that they have, um, I think it's nine of their 11 players on their their base defensive unit or juniors or seniors, and out of that nine, six of them redshirted. So they're like redshirt juniors, redshirt seniors. So they have a lot of corporate knowledge on this defense. They they have an identity. They know what they like to do. Um Defensive coordinator's been there a couple years. He's been able to kind of install what he wants to do, and I, and I think to their credit, it is it has worked, right? And there there is something, Gerald, and I've talked about this a lot: to consistency, right? Changing everything in your program every couple years uh, isn't that isn't just how you build. Every once in a while, you get a flash in a pan and a new coaching hire. Oh my gosh, we're so good, it's happening. But the majority of successful rebuilds don't happen that way. They happen with consistency, small tweaks, you know, bringing this to add on top of it, getting the right guys. Like, it's it's a build. It's time. And Oklahoma State defense is probably the Big 12's, like, most quintessential example of letting that play out and, and it working. I, I think the thing that, that gives me pause about Oklahoma State is what they do in the trenches because I think if Texas has, has really been exposed in any spot this year, it's, it's been the trenches. And I think um, Oklahoma state does what 
Texas doesn't deal with well, which is kind of blitzes and stunting along that offensive line. Um, now I do think when they, you know, Oklahoma State does also like to blitz safeties and corners, and I think if Sam Ellinger can make the right reads, I think he probably kills them with that. But again, can't can he get the ball out in time? Um, but I think for me, the the matchup that I want to watch, really, there are two things that I want to watch is. What does Texas do against that Oklahoma State front? Can Herb Hand's unit get it figured out? Don't have a ton of confidence in Herb Hand's unit as from based on what I've seen so far through four games or through five games. The other thing I want to see is third downs. Oklahoma State is, I think, the best third down defense in the country. Hmm. I think statistically, they're giving up just they're allowing just 19% third down conversions. Now, again, they played Kansas, they played Iowa State, they played West Virginia and Tulsa. So again, everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. But I think I mean, numbers tell a story, and, and on the money downs, the Oklahoma State defense is figuring out how to get off the field. And that, to me, if they can create if, – if, here, here, here's my nightmare scenario from the Oklahoma State defense, Kyle, is that first and second down, they get in the backfield, and Texas faces a second, second and 12, and then you know a third and eight, right? And that, to me, is a recipe for failure because that's what Texas did against OU, and, and OU won that game. And so, like, those two things, to me, go hand in hand where Oklahoma State puts Texas behind the chains off schedule, and then Ellinger has to squeeze a little bit. Ellinger has to try to do too much, and he throws a couple of interceptions, or he just airmails a ball, or he he goes yard when he should go underneath. Like, those weird things that have happened this year with with Sam, who I think is just trying really hard to win these games. Um, That, to me... Just, just gives me pause and even gives me a lot of concern heading into this game. The single biggest thing, there's going to be pressure. They're going to bring it from different looks. They're going to throw safeties. They're going to throw corners because they're going to trust their man coverage, right? OU played man against Texas, and I don't think you would walk away from that OU game saying Texas wide receivers just dusted OU defensive backs all game long, right? Um, so to me, how Texas, receiver, Texas receivers flat out, point blank, need to win in man-to-man when they have one-on-one we talked about josh moore being our best option but we need more than that we need you know we need to utilize some of that tight ends give mismatches so let's use the big guys you know one-on-one advantage hey um we have a couple you know home run threat fast guys let's take the top off and and counter that that blitz but you have to beat your man and sam has to put it on the money hey the timing routes, we don't have guys like Sam and Colin who, you know, just close their eyes and know where each other are, but we're getting there. We have a little bit. You know, there's some guys he feels pretty comfortable with more. I think, you know, Schooler's just shown, you know, that he has a natural cadence early in the season. Can he get back to that? Can Sam get something with Jake Smith, who, you know, he had a really good rhythm with early, but he really hasn't been able to uh, to, to cultivate that so much in the second half of last season or in, in this season. Um, so, that's that's for me the, the game, right? That's what I'm watching is, you know, the talent to go line up one on one, you would imagine Texas could win that all day. Um, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't guarantee it. If Texas wins that, if they do one on one when they're on offense with Oklahoma State's defense and they, they they're winning more of those than they're losing, then I think Texas has every possibility, every right and in, in, in a high likelihood, in fact, to win this game. But if they don't, if it's a wash or they just don't win more than like a third of those one on ones, then I don't think there's a formula or other than just some miracle or Sam putting a team on a back dough where Texas has a chance to win this game. The Texas receiving group hasn't had that game yet. I, they haven't, they haven't done anything to prove to me that they, they are the killers and that they, they have, there have been flashes, right? Hmm. Um, Jay Moore has had some flashes, 
where, where he's he's got, gone up and won a 50-50 ball, or he's jumped between a safety and a corner and just snatched it out of the air, I think. Uh, Brendan Eagles knock on all of the wood. I don't think we paid the Eagle tax in two games. I, I think it's been so. two games since we paid the Eagle tax. So that, to me, is something. I think um, being able to have... Uh, hopefully get Jake Smith more involved in the offense and, and get him and Sam in a rhythm. And again, I think Jared Wiley is the biggest untapped resource on this offense. He's a great Twitter follow, and I think he's a great football player with a really high ceiling. And I think he's got a really high floor, too. I think I think the floor is higher than, than a lot of people think. I think the ceiling is ridiculous. And so, like, I think I want to see I want to see the Texas receivers play up to their level of talent. Now, Oklahoma State always has a has a good set of corners. They always have a good set of corners. If there are two spots that if Gundy offers, I want I want Texas to offer and it's it's wide receiver and cornerback. Mm. Like those are the two spots that if Gundy offers, I want Texas to offer. And so I think for Texas being able to take advantage of being able to have so many bodies and it's going to be interesting to see what the Oklahoma State defense does against Mike Yersich, a guy who's only 2 years removed from being on the Oklahoma State sideline. Right. Like that to me is also something that I'm curious about. It's like, what does, does your stitch fold something in new or like, what does that look like? Uh, and who has the advantage there? And, and conventionalism says it's Oklahoma state. Yeah. So can, let me just say something here. I noticed during the game and I didn't say it during our Baylor recap and I kind of meant to, but there was multiple shots of the Texas sideline during the Baylor game where coach Tom Herman was holding an offensive play call sheet. Now I'm not saying that that meant Tom Herman was taking over and calling the plays or he was exclusively calling the plays that he wasn't just checking what was called or anything like that. But a huge storyline here is does Tom trust Yursich to come in and do the thing he was brought in to do and call the offense. And is it his, and do we get to see, you know, a Yursich offense with, which, you know, if he's going to call the best game of his life, it's going to be the game. His first time back in Stillwater against Mike Gundy in Oklahoma state, he's going to want to call, you know, the perfect, you know, opera in the background is the chess pieces move game that, you know, the best thing he could muster. It's going to be this week. So I, I really hope that he's empowered, able and, and, and trusted to do so. I need Tom Herman to do the thing that I coach literally every leader I've ever coached to do, and that's hire smart people and get out of their way. Trust your hiring process, trust your pre-employment process, and then get out of their way. And, and I think, again, Texas has the the advantage in the Sam Ellinger's just sheer will to win, and you mentioned it before, but like I think Spencer Sanders is a guy who chopped Texas up a year ago, but I think I, I if I, if I'm in a bar fight, Sam Ellinger is always my first pick. And so I think when push comes to shove, if, if Sam's got to put the team on his shoulders late in the game, we've seen him do it three times this year, only one of which turned out in, in a win. But that's I think there's another, <laughs> other mitigating factors to that. But I think when push comes to shove, I think the Texas offense, if they can not be one-dimensional – if, if I think Sam makes the right reads on the RPOs, whether or not he wants to hand it off or pull it and throw it or pull it and run, I think that allows Texas to be way more multiple and get something going on the ground. Because I really think that you you beat a Mike Gundy defense by being multifaceted. I think if they can get Keontae going or Roshan going or Bijan going, get or get all of them going sure. and, and give, them, give them all seven carries and have them all air, average six and a half per. Get the running backs going and keep, Oklahoma State from from really forcing you to beat them through the air. I think that's where you win, and I think that's what I want to see from the Texas offense as it takes on Oklahoma State's defense. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. Right, like I, I mentioned it briefly, but you know Iowa State was able to feed 
the, the Brees, right? They were able to give Brees Hall 20 carries that he turned into 185 yards. I'm not saying that any of Texas's running backs right now are playing at a higher level than Brees Hall. Don't hear me say that. But I think you have three guys who are pretty close in talent, if not have a higher even ceiling than Brees Hall. He's a very, very good running back. Um, but, you know, who wants to step up and take that mantle? Clearly there was something um, that, that the coaching staff should see in that film of what Iowa State, and they have a, they have a good offensive line at this point. I'm you know ready to say they in the run game. I, I think they um, they give Brees Hall opportunities to, to do special things. I'll say that. I'm not going to say Iowa State is perfect in that regard. But, um, you know, can Texas take a model of that? Can you get any one or all three of the guys? Like, you know, we had another 100-yard running back day by committee um that should be a baseline right we should be expecting but can we get 185 yards like we saw Brees hall do i don't necessarily think unless texas replicates the baylor but aha could it be that they were rope-a-doping not only baylor with their six points in the first half with you know three rushes to every pass but also oklahoma state they were making them think oh wait we saw the tape texas is a running team now uh and then they're gonna really have the play action deep i don't know i don't know i I, i'm not you know i am a potstradamus but i'm not truly in on the the texas um team meetings like i know a lot of you tweet at me and think i am because i you know break more news than chip brown but i'll say um that could go for any of you listeners as well but uh i'll say um I, I think that there is something there, right? I am not saying that Oklahoma State is the sieve who just gives up uh, rushing yards, but to good running backs, they have been susceptible. They haven't played a quarterback anywhere near Sam Ellinger's caliber, right? The best quarterback they've played this year is Brock Purdy, and this is not good Brock Purdy right now. He's not in his peak form. A couple weeks ago, he's looking good. He looks maybe back to his beginning season form here, so we'll see, but Ellinger should be the best quarterback they face. He should be a step above this offense. You know, there there are a bunch of ifs, but the talent level is not is is not questioned that it's going to be a step up for the Oklahoma State defense. Yeah, I think that that to me is there. I don't know if there's a team maybe outside of Oklahoma who is as talented as Texas that they'll face all sure. year. But I think Texas is probably the best team that they, or at least the most talented team. In case of the best team, the most talented team that they have faced all. Season. I think the other thing that I want to uh, harp in on before we move on to the to the defense is what can Texas do in the red zone against Oklahoma State. Mm. I think that's something that I really want to see uh, because Oklahoma State only stopped opponents three times in the red zone. So uh, four touchdowns and two field goals. So they're six of nine in the red zone. Um, two of four of those, or two of those came against Iowa State. The best team that they faced all year so like Iowa State managed to put something together granted they only converted on two of them but both of those were touchdowns so two of the four touchdowns allowed were against the only worthwhile team that they faced and so does do Mike Yurcich and Tom Herman get cute in the red zone or do they just run 11 like we should there should be one play or one page worth of plays in the red zone playbook. When you get to the binder and it's red zone, you're within the five yard line. It should be 11 left, 11 right, 11 middle, and maybe a jump pass. Like those are the four plays that I will allow Texas to run. Does does Texas go to the well and do what they know works in the red zone? Or do they try to get cute and allow Oklahoma State to get some stops? Because again, we, we say it all the time, red zone differential and red zone scoring is the is the really the stat to watch in the Big 12 because field goals are failure and you've got to score touchdowns. In Texas right now through, you know, the games they've played and, and they 
offense was good at the beginning. We've seen ups and downs, overtimes, everything. They're at 71% right now, touchdown percentage in the red zone. I think they've only had four field goals made in the red zone so far this season. They've had, um, I believe, eight rushing and 14 passing, something along those, but they come out to uh, 22 for 31, so 71% in the red zone touchdown. So that's, you know, that's good. Can Texas improve on that? Can Is Oklahoma State going to improve their numbers? I think you're right. I think that's another very, very crit- critical matchup uh, to watch for on Saturday. So as we move on to the Texas defense against the Oklahoma State offense, this is the one that I, I, ha- I, I don't know how to feel about it, Kyle. Um, Spencer Sanders is back after basically missing the first three games. He only had two attempts in the in the win over in the, the win over Tulsa before leaving due to injury. Came back against Oklahoma State uh, against um, came back against Iowa State and went twenty of twenty nine for two thirty five, uh, a touchdown and two interceptions. I believe I think that's wrong in our show notes. Uh, two interceptions in the return, but rushed fifteen times uh, for seventy one yards and a score. So. Uh, hurt both teams through the air <laughs> and hurt Iowa State uh, on the ground. Um, that that to me, Spencer Sanders looked like an All Pro and a, an All American against Texas a year ago. So, do they find a way to limit that, or, or Spencer Sanders going to have another big game like that? To me, like the way Sanders goes is the way o- the Oklahoma State offense goes. So, I'm curious to see what he's able to do. I think you have to give. You have to give Spencer Sanders a lot of credit, right? I think he's one of, on a short list of, of three, maybe, the most exciting players in the Big 12 at least, right? Like, you could you could get a, a top 10 list of, of most exciting players in, in, in the country, and, and he would he would be in there, and I'm not sure how far you have to go down before you find him. He just, he, he is a game changer, and you, like you said, it can be uneven at times. He, he makes... Oklahoma State fans hold their breath both ways because there is we we talked about an Eagles tax and there's been Chris Boyd taxes there's taxes that come sometimes with your key contributors there's definitely a Spencer Sanders tax and good Spencer Sanders the way that he can run and when he's slinging it he can make all the throws he just sometimes his decision making and his his self confidence um, get in the way and sometimes you know he's he's overly aggressive when a thing that you've seen like for instance from Sam Ellinger is the ability to throw it away he learned that through his time does Spencer Sanders magically learn that um, in in the five days between games leading into the Texas game or is there going to be a chance because even you said last year and you are not by any stretch of the imagination uh, wrong you know he had 100 yards rushing and 270 just about passing against Texas but he had two interceptions last year against Texas I mean I think there is a um, I think he had a fumble as well I think there is a um, a give and take with him and so it's Chris Ash's job it's Texas defensive job to exploit that and understand you know the, the the old coaching adage of the happiest animal in the world to goldfish right because it's the shortest memory on the planet Spencer Sanders is going to beat you like he's going to break containment he's going to make your defensive line or linebackers look silly because he's so fast and he has a quick first step and he's going to get the edge and he's going to beat you a couple times and you know what he's got a good arm and he's going to chunk and he's going to find the matchup he wants and he's going to beat you a couple times like he just he is very 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 good um but it's kind of the slow play where you let him beat himself, where you, you bait him a little bit, you know, think back to that Oklahoma game with Spencer Rattler, what they did with the Marvian Overshown to kind of drop him into that zone late to, to give that look and get that interception, right? There's going to be some things you can scheme for, but really I think it's just making the plays when they present themselves, right? Texas has to let him beat himself. Is he going to throw one up? convert that interception, bring it in, you know, get, get secure that, um, and, and, and take advantage of those plays. And that's, that's again, how you tip, 
tipped the, the whole balance of this game. And we talked about the offense already, but like the defense has done a good job of getting stops, but the offense hasn't done a really good job of turning that into much of anything this year. So um, it's it's got to be complimentary, right? I think that I think the defense has shown that they're well. I say has shown every game but Baylor. They've shown that they're going to probably be opportunistic as as they can be when when teams give them opportunities, they'll probably take advantage of it. Again, Baylor was weird because you know there was one B.J. Foster that if he has two working hands, it's an interception, right? But, like, the offense hasn't done much with those, so I think you've got to play complimentary football there. I think the other thing that we have to look at is the alleged slow start to Chuba Hubbard's season, and can Texas really limit him? Because they say he has a slow start, but through four games, the man has 478 yards and five touchdowns. Uh, in the most recent matchup, 25 carries, 139 yards, including a sports center top tenor where he doesn't touch the ground. He kind of hovers and then continues to run for a score. Um, but like Texas has been gashed a little bit against the run. We saw it against Texas Tech. We saw it against OU. We saw it against TCU. We didn't really see it a ton against Baylor because Baylor didn't really force the issue that much because they weren't getting much. Their offensive line didn't have a whole lot going for them. But, like, can Chuba Hubbard beat them? And are they going to allow like, – are they going to allow a running back to beat them is the question. And I don't – in the Big 12, that very rarely happens. But I think there are two teams in the Big 12 that can do it, and I think Oklahoma State is one of them. Yeah, I mean, Gerald, you and I played an NCAA online dynasty many years ago, and the secret to me winning multiple national championships to start that thing off was you build your team pretty much the way that Oklahoma State has built their offense, right? It really – dual threat quarterback who's very fast and can make some plays a really really good running back who you can rely on and then at least one just home run receiver right they have that in tylen wallace so um it's it's tough i think herman said in his presser this week that um chris ash is gonna have some sleepless nights like it it's not easy you like the same way that you say chuba hubbard got off to a slow start is the same way that people say well sam ellinger has been you know less than i did like we're talking about two of the better players in the country like there's no doubt that Sam Ellinger and Chuba Hubbard are two of the, the bet, better, best, however you want to phrase it, players in the country. So when we talk about, well, they're not quite up to it's because we expected them to each be potentially competing against each other for a Heisman Trophy this season if they were at their apex. So, I mean, and both of those guys have that talent, and, and, and there should be no disrespect given by any Texas fan ever when Chuba Hubbard is involved because, um, you know, Todd Orlando, one of his defining performances was holding him, you know, to 200 yards rushing. And, and it was actually a great performance because it took him like 50 carries to get there. But, you know, he's that good. That, that That's a thing that a defensive coordinator can hang his hat on. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer is for, for stopping Chuba Hubbard. I think Texas has been pretty good um, at times against the run and at times, you know, they've let much lesser talents than, than, than think about a TJ Pledger for Oklahoma than Chuba Hubbard, you know, gashed them a bit. So, um I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think, you know, that's this is where we'll learn a lot about Chris Ash and, and, and you know, he's going to learn a lot about himself because it's a tough matchup. It's as, it's as tough a thing to do as anything in the country, stopping that Oklahoma State offense, but to, to focus specifically on the run game is you have Hubbard, Sanders, and, and you know, just, again, throw Wallace out there as a, as a stretch the field option. It's just tough. It's, it's unbelievably tough. But I think um, if Texas can make plays, make – you know, points of contention be in the backfield if it's if it's an RPO, if it's a you know if it's a, a run pass you know look if they can make those decisions happen in the backfield and, and you know keeps Sanders somewhat contained, somewhat playing on his heels, keep Chuba you know from getting heads of steam. Then I think you know setting that edge is really important against Chuba because if he he can have 
five carries for 15 yards and then all of a sudden break a 70 yarder and his whole day feels different because he has that speed and so keep him bottled up as long as you can and like i said with sanders like goldfish memory if he does break one on if he does get something just get back and get after it again because he's gonna he's gonna have some success you will not you will not hold him under 50 yards rushing unless there's an injury right like it's just not gonna happen he's gonna get his and so it's a matter of what do you take away what do you allow them to have and and what's left maybe that's the thing to do and again i'm i'm not a defensive coordinator but like do do you do you just know that Chuba's going to get his yardage, and so then you're like, I'm not going to let Spencer Sanders beat me on the edges and extend drives because that's really what killed Texas last year was like Spencer Sanders would just break contain when Texas had good coverage downfield when Texas was able to keep Tylen Wallace and that receiving core cinched up, and then Spencer Sanders would catch it catch a seam on the edge and break out and, and get the seven yards or the six yards they needed for a first down, and so maybe that's like. Maybe it's just too much to ask to, to be like, hey, can we contain Chuba Hubbard? Nobody has successfully done that really all for his entire, for most of the last two years. So, like, maybe that's just something not to worry about and just keep Spencer Sanders from beating you and extending unnecessary drives. Because I think the Texas defense, they've shown that they're able to get off the field. And, and we saw Max Duggan extend some drives with his feet. And he basically won the game with his feet. We saw that to me maybe is is the bigger thing to watch. Like, can the defense like who's going to be spy? Like, I I would love to see them just let D Overshone spy Spencer Sanders for the entire game. Like, just have him like that's your job. Yeah, is you spy him and make Spencer Sanders make the decision. And if if he wins it, he wins it. And if if Texas wins it, Texas wins it. Maybe that maybe that's the strategy. Maybe that's what they go with. I don't know, but they've got to keep Spencer Sanders from doing what he did last year, which is extending unnecessary drives with his feet to, to, to really turn into scoring drives. Yeah, and, and I think you, you you retweeted it. There was an NFL writer who talked about, um, instead of just spying, also going as far as spaying, uh, Kyler Murray, one of the great uh, typos uh, of recent memory. Um, yeah, go ahead and spay uh, <laughs> Spencer Sanders. You know, Spencer Spanders, Sanders spaying. Say that 10 times fast. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, neuter him a bit. Take take uh, his, his explosiveness uh, off the table a smidge. And, and yeah, I don't know. Again, Chris Ash is going to earn a good chunk of his millions of dollars this week with what he does. There's a lot of dudes who are, you know, who are looking forward to playing on Sundays in just a very short uh, period of time. And, and so, I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's, we'll, we'll find out a lot about this team, but all that context, can we just say, Gerald, this feels eerily like a Tom Herman game. This feels like a Tom Herman. There's no chance he should win this. We're the underdogs. We can't win. They're so good, which is exactly what Tom Herman loves. That's what Tom Herman cut his teeth on, made his name on. That's what got him the Texas job is when Oklahoma, you know, goes to play Houston and gets punched in the mouth and just can't do anything. You know, that's 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 Herman when he feels like an underdog, like what the USC game, all chips are all in, you know, uh, all of the bowl games where he has a month to get in the guy's ears about you. You're not supposed to win the like. If Tom Herman had his way, Texas would never receive a vote in the polls until the the last week, right? Like he wants that underdog to come in and just you know punch up. That's how he likes to do it. It's weird, you know, fit for Texas. He's learning how to how to adjust that. But this feels. I'm not saying we've talked a lot about how good Oklahoma State is on both sides of the ball. So intuitively, it shouldn't be a thing that I say. But this feels like it could have the recipes for a Tom Herman game. I felt the same way, and I've said it in our in our Slack channel for the BLN Slack discussion. Like this feels like one of those games that Tom Herman messes around and just wins right 
And and I'm not confident that it'll happen, but it has all of the the signs of it. It's it's they've got no number, and the team they're playing has a little number, right? Vegas thinks that the spread it's a tight spread. I think Vegas has Oklahoma State by like three or three and a half, right? I actually think people need to take the easy money in Oklahoma State and push that line up a little bit longer, so uh, so Texas can. Feel a little bit more like an underdog, so bet 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 up bet up that line. So hopefully, uh, Texas will feel even more like an underdog. But like when you look at like ESPN's FPI, it's basically a fifty fifty split. They've got Texas fifty one, Oklahoma State forty nine, right? Like that's basically what it is. So like this just has all of the makings of a. It, this is going to go either one of two ways. Where this is a game that Texas just looks absolutely outmanned and outclassed because they shouldn't, or Texas comes out and plays lights out. And it's like, is Texas good or is Oklahoma State fool's gold? Like, and it's probably maybe a little bit of both mm. uh, if that's the result that Texas ends up with. We'll have a lot to break down one way or the other for sure, Gerald. So, Kyle, it's it's that time, my least favorite time of the week, <laughs> where I can't seem to, couldn't find my backside with two hands, a map, and a flashlight. But it's Padre Adamas time, Kyle. Um, so you have a commanding three to negative four. <laughs> lead currently uh i may go for like i may go for a, a, a set a record for how low we can go with this maybe <laughs> i'll just make outlandish picks and see but kyle what's what are your what is or are your pod stradamus picks for this week like we've learned with you know any good texas team over the years if you get a lead like this it's best just to get conservative and sit on it never worry about your opponent coming and roaring back to make you pay for that so i'm only going to go with one this week um mainly because I, I want this closer Gerald. you deserve it you're a smart guy you're one of the brightest football minds i know and this scoreline is just utterly unfair to you again if we're playing golf you're kicking my butt everything else you know it's you're you're in the negatives but it's okay this week for my one i'm going to go ahead and say it against ou one of the things that our defense did incredibly well, it was one of my favorite stretches of Texas football watching a defense in years, is they had three consecutive possessions where they forced a turnover. I don't know if I've seen that ever or at least more than once or twice in my handful of, of, of times watching the University of Texas for, for a couple decades now. But um, So that was an incredible stretch. They turned around with a bye week and in a you know a Baylor team that is a much different offense than the, the two we're, we're talking about in, in the Oklahomas. Um, and they were unable to capitalize on four dropped interceptions. So I'm going to go ahead and say not three in a row by any instance and, and not four miss, but I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to say Texas turn Spencer Sanders specifically over twice, whether that's fumble or interception. They forced two, intercept, two turnovers off of Spencer Sanders, and I think, to me, that's the key to a Texas victory. For the sake of full transparency, I was going to go with Texas wins the turnover battle. That's my first one. That's fine. But, to, I, but I mean, is is that fun, though? Is It, it, it might be fine, <laughs> but is that fun, Kyle? Because really, I could win that without – you winning it as well but i don't know if that's uh, you're also banking on sam here you're banking on keontae to to wrap it up so i mean there there are some more components that you enter into this equation i'll go with my offensive prediction first i'll go with my offensive prediction first Uh, my offensive predictions i think that three different texas players will have a touchdown reception in this contest. I think three different Texas players will haul in a touchdown pass in this contest. I'm not going to say who or what. I'm going to get real vague with this to try to get some easy bunny points, Mm -hmm. some layups Mm -hmm. here. But I think you have three different Texas players that haul in a touchdown reception. All right. I'm, I'm just going one. So you jump back in. 
Okay. Yeah. So okay. So for my second pods for Thomas, I like to go. I like to go one on either side of the ball. So that was my offense. So defensively, I'm 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 wrestling and waffling because the week that I don't say Texas gets two sacks, Texas gets two sacks, which is what <laughs> happened against Baylor. Uh, but I think the Baylor defensive uh, offensive line was so depleted uh, that it wasn't. It was crazy. I think that um, defensively, I think Texas holds Oklahoma State. To fewer, and this is going to be a big number, but when you know, think about Oklahoma State's rushing, uh, it's a it's a number fewer than two hundred rushing yards. Okay, that's that 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 does seem like a, a a low bar, but I I absolutely understand it. They went over two hundred last week, so I'm going to give it to you because you're in the negatives, and I think I think softballs are okay right now. Well, when, when you think when you think about the two biggest threats on the Oklahoma State offense is Chuba Hubbard and Spencer Sanders keeping plays alive with his feet. So like last week they had like one thirty eight and seventy five with those two plus a couple other players chipping in. So they had a pretty decent rushing number a week ago. And so I think if Texas can limit Chuba and limit um, Spencer Sanders to you know. 120 and 50. I think that's probably a win for Texas. Yeah, Oklahoma State is averaging this season 216.3. So you are holding them. You know, I'm not a math guy, but a whole you know some eight percentage points or something lower than than their season average. So I'll give it to you, Gerald. I will give it to you. Um, and, and you know, if they can help hold them well below that, um, that that will will bode well for for Texas winning. So one one quick update and something that we're keeping our eye on uh, that we'll basically keep our eye on until kickoff is is the the injury situation with Joseph Osai he left the game uh, against Baylor came back in and finished the game um, but it's an interior cap interior capsule strain you can tell I don't have a, any sort of science degree uh, but basically he's wearing a brace uh, he's worn a brace all week basically from what reports saying that they expect him to participate in practice at some point this week but. I, with with these injuries, you never know, but I always like to think if a guy comes back into a game, my hopes are high that he'll be in for the next game, uh, especially if he spends most of the week rehabbing and trying to get that thing right. Joseph Osai, if there's one player, the, I think as tough as Sam Ellinger is on offense, I think Joseph Osai is probably just as tough on defense. Right, right. I mean, it, you look at that Texas Tech game, and he he was hurting afterwards. He was, you know, he he just had played. Uh, in a, you know a long game you could tell he was not 100% and he came right back the next week and I mean he's he's a guy he's going to similar to Sam have to be broken to be kept off the field I think Herman s- didn't want to put him in against Baylor but Baylor got a little something going at the end there and they kind of felt they needed to but the fact that they felt they needed to and he could kind of speaks volumes about you know how, how willing and ready he was um, to go I, I would be very surprised if, if we don't see a lot of Joseph Osai on Saturday so again, Texas will face off against Oklahoma State at three o'clock. So glad this is a night game on Halloween Saturday. Spooky, spooky. So let's uh, let's transition from there to the Greater Brune Orange lenses. We have a couple ones that just notes we'll cover in here. First of all, Baseball America uh, has their never too early top twenty-five, um, which I respect. Texas came in at number eleven on there. I think they were fourteen and three. The end of the suspended season kind of had something going. So that's about. Right, you know, would have loved to see him crack the top ten, but I understand that they their number one recruiting class took some hits in the MLB draft. We've talked about that a couple times. That might have pushed him over the top into the top ten. But number eleven, that's a good spot, good striking distance for Coach Pierce's boys. And again, way too early to be talking specific rankings in baseball. Um, 
Another kind of piece of news this week that I think is just great for General Longhorns is Arkansas head coach Sam Pittman, um, a guy who I'm, I'm kind of learning to like, and I usually don't like anything about Arkansas. In their lead-up to Texas A&M, was asked about the rivalry, and he said, oh, um, Arkansas's biggest rival is Texas. Um, I guess A&M would be second on that list, which I can only imagine – like, I, I hate Arkansas as well, but I can only imagine how well that sits with Aggie fans, like, who just don't want to see Texas as their main rival, even though, you know, any Aggie on Twitter would speak differently, would feel differently, um, and, and you know, want to think that um, they're probably Arkansas's biggest rival because they're both SEC and they have a long history, but it just very clearly isn't because Arkansas and Texas rivalry stems from games at the highest level, the national championship caliber, which Texas A&M has not been anywhere remotely close to since multiple world wars have happened. If your last national championship is closer to the Spanish flu than it is COVID, you probably shouldn't sit at the big kid table. <laughs> I, I, there's nothing I could say to top that. I think that's exactly right, Gerald. Um, so I love that we got to talk about the uh, talk about the Razorbacks and turn it into a dig at the Aggies. But let's talk a little bit about um, some of the Longhorns in the NFL this week and what we got to see from them. Uh, our, my beloved Ravens were on by as well as the Colts and the Marcus Johnson updates. Your Dolphins also, so both of our teams on uh, on a bye week. And then uh, Holton Hill and, and uh, Chris Boyd have been basically on a season-long bye uh, as they deal with injuries, but the, the, the Vikings themselves are on a bye. So we did see the uh, the Tennessee Titans uh, unfortunately walk away with the loss. Kenny Vaccaro had four solo tackles. Jeff Swain continues to, to see some playing. Didn't record any, any meaningful stats but is seeing quite a few snaps uh for that team so um that looks good uh a couple like unfortunate news though uh you know uh we know don foreman didn't play uh in that in that titans game we're hoping to see him but there's a couple guys who won't be playing for a little while chiefs alex okafor got assigned to the ir so he'll miss at least um the next i think three games um so it's uh unfortunate to see because i mean the chiefs are having a really good season potential super bowl season yet again you want your longhorns contributing to that every step of the way but uh, hopefully he can he can get healthy for that one the chiefs are probably the best team in in the nfl like it's pretty easy to say that and so um Alex Ogilvore being a contributor is huge, but that's a team that's run through its offense. And so, again, if the offense keeps clicking, Alex Ogilvore probably gets a ring. They'll be fine, yeah. Uh, Steelers might have something to say about that. I don't know. They're pretty good. But uh, we'll see. Kyle Shanahan, though, does improve to a winning record now with the 49ers. They had a win over the Patriots and improved a 4-3. and three. For those Patriots, Adrian Phillips at seven tackles, one for loss. Continues to be kind of the surprise of the season, I think, for Longhorn contributors. I'm really, really happy for him that he's settled in there and, and playing very meaningful uh, uh, for those New England Patriots. Uh, Colin Johnson, another loss for him with the Jaguars. Caught his only target uh, this week. One catch for 13 yards. Uh, big update in the Eagles win. Hassan Ridgeway had two tackles uh, up from his usual one per week that he's been averaging. So if this rate, he'll get four the next week, eight after that, 16 the week after. He'll just double from here on out. Did have also one tackle for a loss. Uh, in a losing effort, another defensive lineman, uh, our boy Chuck, uh, did have a tackle and another quarterback hurry for the Texans my poor hometown Houston Texans my wife is a Texans fan I live in Houston um so it's just tough the one in six start for those guys um that's not an easy one and an additional um injury news sorry I meant to pair these together I said I said the Chiefs uh, are without Alex I look for the Bengals um and you know 
freshman phenom Joe Burrow, uh, who threw for 400 yards but did not do so behind Trey Hopkins, who's been his only center that he's known at the NFL level. Trey Hopkins was knocked out uh, of the most recent game against the Browns with a concussion. He's going through concussion protocol this week, probably will not be playing this week as well. Um, For the Saints, Malcolm Brown tackle, Malcolm Roach no stats recorded, but the big one tackle stat that I'm excited about this week, Gerald Malik Jefferson on the stat sheet for those Chargers in a big victory. We got to see Malik Jefferson get a tackle, get his name on the books, hopefully a slow metamorphosis into uh, some more consistent time uh, and really proving that, that he has a chance at that NFL level. Just a story I know myself, I assume you as well, rooting incredibly hard for Mr. Malik Jefferson. Always, always. And it's glad to see him land with the team. Glad to see him. He's he's a guy that I think more than anybody suffered from the the Charlie Strong transition and the lack of development at Texas. That guy should have been a uh, first-round pick or at least a high draft pick and just see him kind of languish is really, really sad. You're saying basically he should be Jordan Hicks at the NFL level. <laughs> uh, basically. You know, Jordan Hicks himself in a Cardinals win had seven tackles and continues to be one of the probably, I don't know where he's at right now, I didn't look it up, but top 15 tacklers in the NFL. Um, just a, a bellwether for that defense. I think that the most meaningful play of that game obviously was was another defender, Buda, Buda Baker, getting absolutely just, just tracked starred by um dk metcalf in in one of the most like he was both the alien and the predator um it just <laughs> it was just it was just freaky um someone i don't recall who it was one a former player tweeted out that he he is um wakanda um and I, I think it's right like he's just such a specimen and that was that was one of the wildest plays i've seen in the nfl this season and maybe in a couple of seasons that was Twitter was a buzz. My group, all of my group texts were a buzz. Uh, it was ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous. Um, we do have to talk about Ma- our, our boy Malcolm Brown on, yeah. on Monday Night Football too. Oh, and, and and we would be remiss not to talk about Shirt Sibilo Universal City Independent School District that claims both Gerald, uh, myself, and Malcolm Brown as three of the stellar alumni. You know, uh, he continues career we didn't um but he did have uh 10 rushes for 57 yards and a td uh in that i think he also had uh no no catches um but did have a they won by 14 points he accounted for their only rushing touchdown uh of the day so you know uh malcolm brown we're excited to see him he might be might just be the longhorn of the week this week because monday night football doing it on the biggest stage i like that i'm excited for him but we did have Obviously, coming back off the bye week, Gerald, the we always close it here with our uh, our, our Longhorns of the Northwest, Seattle Seahawks. Gerald, I'm going to start with uh, Quandre Driggs. Had a good game, three tackles uh, himself. Michael Dixon did what he does, three punts for 153 yards, one of which inside the 20, and a nice, cool is a cucumber 66-yard bomb that he dropped in there. Um, guy continues to be amazing. But there was one player, Gerald, and because this is your wheelhouse, I want you to tell me. Uh, there was a certain player with three tackles himself for the Seahawks and one uh, strip force fumble. Um, so, Gerald, who, who, who are we talking about here? Puna! That's right, Puna Ford, Mr. Puna Ford. Gerald, what did you think of Big Puna's performance this week? I just want to go back to the opening year of this podcast, Kyle. We're a fledgling podcast trying to get our trying to get our, our names known, trying to get ourselves out there. And one intrepid host and his co-host who agreed with him said that 
NFL GMs would look like geniuses for getting this guy late in the draft. We didn't think he'd go undrafted. He did go undrafted. And the Seattle GM is probably one of the best in the league, we'll go ahead and say it, uh, at finding these undrafted gems. And so Puna Ford has done, you know, things like being one of the highest graded defensive linemen in that class, right? Like, uh, he, he turned, he just makes play after play after play. And so... As a guy who's been called undersized his whole life, I'm glad to see another guy who's been called undersized his whole life making it big on the biggest stage. Well, and I mean, I think the the coolest part about it was he made the tackle of a dude who is the highest paid receiver in the NFL. I mean, a guy who literally is one of the big reasons that I talked about the Houston Texans being one in six uh, because they made the bonehead trade of the decade to, to send DeAndre Hopkins out to Arizona. But, um, the fact that Puna Ford is doing that to, to, to receivers tells me like, there's nothing this man can't do. He's making in space strip tackles of the best receiver in the NFL. And Gerald, it does not matter how in the negative either of us ever go on Podstradamus. We will forever have the Puna scoreboard because we called that one. So, 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 so unbelievably hard. And I think the pro football focus folks agreed with us. What was 91 this week was his grade. So um, scoreboard forever, Podstradamus, Puna, Poonstradamus, as it were. Did she's, Gerald is, is violently shaking his head at me. You can't see because this is a podcast against a visual medium, of course. But uh, I'm just going to move it. I'm going to move on. We're going to leave that one there, uh, Poonstradamus. But uh, let's move it to the Godzilla Tron. Gerald, what are you watching on your screen this week? Uh, I'm watching a co-host who's trying to actively kill me. Um, no, so uh, I got I had a, I had a pretty good streaming week. So um, I I after all the talk about happy endings, Kyle, I had to dive back in on that uh, and rewatch. It's one of my favorite sitcoms of the last uh, probably couple of decades. It's just it's low key fun, funny. The thing I didn't realize that I forgot about is that they aired the first season like ridiculously out of order, and I forgot about that. And so, like, when you go in to watch it, you can do it one of two ways. And the next time I do it, this is how I'm going to do it. But I Googled the proper airing order of those episodes just because it's it's it does weird things where, like, in episode two, one of the main characters has a food truck. And then two episodes later, he's working in an office dreaming about opening a food truck. And so that bothers me. Um, and I know why they reordered them the way that they did because they put the funnier episodes at the end of the season. Mm. Which makes complete sense. They put the better episodes at the end of the season. So, like, as you're trying to build and, and get renewed for a second season, people look at the most recent stuff. Uh, but it just does since it's been canceled, it, we don't have to do that. So you can watch them in order. So Google the proper viewing order of Happy Ending Season 1. But it continues to be a very, very funny show. Um, I also, HBO, I'm not, a, I'm not a big horror movie guy. I'm not a big horror TV guy. I'll only watch horror things when I think they, they have something to say or, or I've heard that they're good. So like, that's why I watch Lovecraft country because Jordan Peele's name will get me in anything. If he puts his name on it, I'm going to give it a shot. Um, but I'm not a huge horror guy. Um, HBO did an adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches. If you don't know who Roald Dahl is, he's the guy who did Charlie and Chocolate Factory, James the Giant Peach, Big Friendly Giant. Um, and so he also did The Witches. And um, HBO did an adaptation of, of it starring Anne Hathaway. It's a family movie. I wouldn't particularly even call it a good family movie, but I do have to call out like Anne Hathaway 
absolutely camps it up in the best way possible. <laughs> like it is just like it, it's so ridiculous. Um, she she totally is just like having a blast doing it. You could tell um, because even in this not so very good family movie, it, it's it's she's fun in it. I would be really honest with you. I don't know if my kids will ever watch this movie though because it's super traumatizing in a couple of ways and like ends on kind of a down note. Like the point that they're trying to make is good, but like the way that this guy tries to land the plane doesn't, doesn't really work in a way that I want my kids to have to ingest that particular lesson. And then I, I picked up another audio book. Um, again, I'm, I like weird, weird books. So, um, there's, there's a, there's an audio book series called Fred, the vampire lawyer, which basically it's, it's a comedy series about a guy who thinks he's going to get really cool because by becoming a vampire. And it turns out he's just as boring as he was before. <laughs> and so I find it, it's very, very funny. Uh, I, I got a good kick out of it, but there's, there's like four or five of them. I think, I think the audiobooks are pretty fun. So that's my Godzilla Tron for the week. Kyle. Very cool, Gerald. I didn't watch a lot of TV. I actually watched a couple movies, and um, I, I watched Just Mercy, the uh, Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx um, vehicle on, I believe, I think it's on Netflix. I can't recall, but um, it's really good. Um, good. It's one of those, like, you watch the movie, you you wipe the tears out of your eyes, and you immediately log online to, to donate to the organization that's pictured um, in the film, because it's like, it's 100% just telling a true story, but a story that probably needed to be told a story that's timely. Uh, I think it came out, you know, in a timely manner and fashion as, as um, things have kind of been crazy all around, but it's, you know, just a brief highlight. It's basically the, 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 you know, criminal justice system for an African, African American man who um, is effectively just, you know, in a small, in a Southern Alabama town is, subjected to the law of racism as opposed to the law of land and and one young lawyer who basically like it's a story you've heard before unfortunately it's a story that gets told multiple times because it's a story that's happened countless times and so it, it just because it's a true story and because they focus in on some of the details um it has a lot of heart-wrenching moments but it also has kind of an uplifting just at least, you know, at least this one guy in this one instance was able to avoid the death penalty, rightfully so, um, as there was literally no real evidence. And, and anyways, I won't ruin the movie. I'll just say um, you should watch it, but it's a tough watch. It's a good watch, um, but it's an emotional um, watch for anyone. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so my wife and I watched that. And then we started Queen and Slim. Um, I don't think we knew how um, kind of, there was similar um, racism and violence in the criminal justice system. This was a different end, more focused on the kind of police side. And, a, and a, a, I'll just give we, – we, we basically got halfway through it and said, we're going to pause. Let's watch something happy, and then we'll circle back to this. So I didn't actually finish it, but there was just – you know between the first half of that and the other, there was about two hours of just like – it was a tough tough week. A lot, of, a lot of heartfelt but meaningful watches. I'd recommend – either i've i've not finished queen and slim so i can't speak to it but just mercy certainly for anyone and then i'll i'll, I'll pull the thread just a bit gerald have i talked about the book i've been reading for like six months i finally finished devil in the white city no you have not okay so uh, let me say this and i do want to hear your thoughts on on the other two as well but let me finish and then i'll give you a, a rejoinder space um so 
Devil in the White City. I'll give a little more background than than, than I had planned because I think um, folks are just hearing about it for the first time. For some reason, I thought I talked about it. It took me a long time to read, and it's not because it's a bad book. I just picked it up and put it down, and, and then I'd have to go back and make sure I was up there. But it basically... So it tells a couple stories. It tells the story of the 1983 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, right? The, the World's Fair. They basically built a second city inside of the second city in Chicago. Um, and it is just... It's wild that a hundred and... 30 years ago, this thing that happened was such a, like, propelling cultural moment for the entire world, um, and how many things came out of that, um, you know, the World's Fair is a cool thing, but that's where the Ferris wheel is invented, that's where, you know, like, Walt Disney's father was one of the migrant workers who worked on it, and, like, this, like, beautiful white, like, city they created, the white city, um, in, in the middle of the city became the inspiration for Disney world, right? That, that Walt hearing stories about its construction and its grandeur eventually like placed into there, like some of the ways that they did electricity and like streets and, and landscape and architecture. And just like, I'm trying to think of the countless number. I didn't have it prepared, but of just items that were, were first innovated, created that had never been done before that happened then and how the whole country in the middle of a depression basically came um, to, to, to this fair. So that's the white city. The devil is that it was also at the very same time that America and really probably truly the, the world's really first true serial killer is the same time as Jack, Jack the Ripper, who killed like one tenth of the, the, the amount of people. But H.H. H. Holmes, um, America's first documented serial killer, is like performing these heinous, gruesome actions at the same time and so the chapters progress in a linear timeline of development of the city of the uh the world's fair expo and then this guy and how they're each plotting and building foundations and doing things and it's just this like wild and creepy juxtaposition um it but it's just told really well and with historical accuracy and details not too sensationalized um but it's just uh it's just really incredible it's a great story that i, I wasn't truly like aware of before this and so it was really captivating when i finally just read through the the last third of the book couldn't put it down but um i'll say it's long it's probably 400 pages small type but it's it's worth it and actually i just found this out this is what i was going to say is that they um leonardo dicaprio bought the rights in 2010 it was going to be a movie directed by scorsese um but instead hulu um got involved and right before quarantine all started i think in february they announced that hulu was making a series based on this and i think it's in production i don't know um where it sits with with covid and everything how what the you know release date on that might be but um read the book quick if you can because i think the series is going to be great but it's great to have that source material and kind of feel it before there is the thing to watch that's how i feel anyway so check out the book first if you get a chance to uh dear listeners and then maybe 2021 if that series is released then um you can watch it as well so um that's my that's my hybrid book and screen uh finishers devil in the white city love it it's 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 been on my list for a while and honestly um, I just haven't had like the mental or emotional capacity to like put that in my brain currently, but mm-hmm. you know what? It's something that I, I, I've, I've come highly recommended by several people that I, that I trust. So I'm curious to, to dive in and them the, I don't know. I think the production's probably stalled on it because of COVID like everything else. So, sure. um, again, I've got some time, but I think once they announce it coming <laughs> out, I'll probably end up just shotgunning it to, to get through it. But that's all we've got for you this week. Kyle. Where can good folks find you on the internet? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Carbon. You can also follow the Texas Pregamer at Texas Pregamer. 
You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at GH Goodrich. Follow the show on Twitter at Longhorn Pod. Choose an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. Catch us on Saturday afternoon slash early evening after the Texas game on Facebook for our post-game live stream. We'll give you our instant analysis of the game. Thank you so much for tuning in again this weekend. Until next time, hook them. Hook them. Mike Gundy's going as Sonic the Hedgehog for Halloween.